even if things don't work out, it doesn't matter because what I've learned is that every time you step into fear, it creates a stepping stone to where you're meant to be. Welcome to Stand Out, Get Noticed, the podcast that helps you speak and present with rockstar confidence. I'm Christina Cantors, your host and founder of The C Method Communication Skills Training. For free resources and to subscribe to the show, visit thecmethod.com. Hey, Rockstar, welcome back to Stand Out, Get Noticed. Christina with you here for episode 159. Now, I'm really, really excited about this episode because I am featuring an amazing woman. Her name is Penny Lacasso, and she is the world's first happiness hacker. And you're about to find out what that means. And she is on a mission to teach 1 million women and girls by 2020 how to future-proof happiness in work and life. She She's from Be Kindred. That's the company she runs. And she transforms lives and organizations through her workshops and keynotes. Penny's passion is focused on technology amplifying human potential rather than replacing it. Now, the thing that impresses me most about Penny is that in just three years of running Be Kindred, she has achieved some incredible things and firmly placed herself as a global thought leader on humanizing the future of work by teaching the how of happy change. Um, today, we're talking about what Penny means by future-proofing happiness, as well as, it, as well as what it means to step into your fear. The thing I love about Penny is that she walks her talk. You know how I like to get out of my comfort zone and demonstrate to you that, you know, you can do the same. Penny does the same too. And she shares the story of how she pushed her own comfort barrier in a big way by delivering a keynote in her bathing suit, which was huge for her as well as, as you're about to hear, huge, um, had a huge impact globally as well. We talk about what we can all do to get comfortable with rejection and to move closer towards the things that we want and the things that are possible for us. A really, really inspiring woman. Show notes with links to resources mentioned will be at thecmethod.com slash penny. And there'll be a link there in the description of this podcast in your app, which you can tap on and it'll take you straight there. I really enjoyed this conversation with Penny and I hope you do too. All right, without further ado, here's Penny Lacasso. You are a remarkable woman. Oh, (laughs) thank you. You are. And I'm so glad that my friend Mona introduced us the other week at Work Club. You are doing some amazing things with your company, Be Kindred, around empowering people, especially women and girls, a phrase that you use is to help people future-proof their happiness. And I'd love to start by asking, what does future-proofing happiness mean? Oh, so for me, when I talk about happiness, I talk about happiness um, in terms of my definition. And my definition of happiness is having the skills and the support to be able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you and come out the other side better than what you were before. And so when I talk about future proof, I try and help people craft the skills that enable that definition of happiness because I believe the reality is life's going to throw shit things at you. We can't avoid that. Mm. But what we can do is focus on how we respond and how we behave in life um, and how we choose 
to allow emotions to come in and out of our lives. But I think the most important thing in the context of happiness is being able to accept every emotion and be able to sit through every emotion, um, but also allow yourself or have the skills and the support to be able to allow those emotions to pass in a manner that is timely. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think, I, I think of it in the context of my own life. So I think that sometimes we can make things a lot bigger than what they really are in our own heads. Um, and equally, I think all of us, many of us enjoy, um, actually wallowing a bit, you know, when bad stuff happens. Sometimes that wallowing actually is part of the process of feeling better. So, um, what I like to do is I actually like to put a time limit. It sounds crazy, but on my wallowing or how long I'll allow myself to feel that way, because I don't think it's healthy for anyone to feel crap for a prolonged period of time. Now, it sounds very regimented and very process-driven and not everyone can do this on their own. But the whole point of having a timeline around allowing yourself to wallow is consciously understanding that when you get to the end of that timeline, you know, say for me it's three days, for example, if something craps happen, Mm. depending on what it is. When I get to the end of that three days, if I can't say, you know what, I've allowed myself the space and now I'm going to move on. If I can't pull myself out of that, it's a conscious decision to say, well, maybe I don't have the skills to do that and go and seek the support and help that I need before it gets to a point that it's actually going to impact a lot more things in my life. Mm. And how did you figure that out yourself? Is that something you learned from someone else? (sighs) No, it's not something I learned from someone else. I just have learned um, on my journey of leaving a very safe corporate career and stepping into the absolute uncertainty and unknown of creating your own company, that um, the most powerful tool you have available to you is your mindset. And so I've spent as much time um, reading and watching and learning and just observing um, behaviour and how um, mindsets impact our ability to either thrive in life or hold ourselves back. And so the more I learn and the more I understand, the more I basically start to test and play with simple tactics to see what works and what doesn't in, t- in order to be able to shift my mindset as quickly as possible back to the positive and the opportunity, you know, mindset or that growth mindset mm. rather than sitting um, in, in what I think in many ways can be a, a lot more comfortable for people in, in the misery. And it's interesting, I see it in my work all the time, you know, the amount of people that I meet that come to my programs and my workshops and they are so happy to sit in the misery of the known, right? They know it's making them, them unhappy rather than step into the discomfort of the unknown, even though they know it's highly likely it will make them happier. It's to do with that certainty, isn't it? It's yeah. one of hum- like one of our human needs is certainty and people love certainty even though it's certainly going to be bad. Yeah. They still love the known. Correct. I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm working, I've worked with thousands in this space in the last couple of years. And from the people that I've worked with, I've done my programs in Australia, in New Zealand and San Francisco. And I've also delivered talks, you know, in Amsterdam and I get a lot of feedback from, from these sorts of things. And I honestly believe that probably 70% of the population is not happy and they know they're not happy, but they allow fear to be a barrier between you know, the happiness that they seek. Mm. They allow fear to stop them um, because they'd rather stay in the comfort of the known um, than step into the discomfort of the unknown. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're yeah. going to unpack that whole concept of comfort and discomfort and why it's so powerful to get comfortable with, with the unknown. Before we get to that though, when you, at this, you know, when you talked about your definition of, of happiness, being able to manage all different emotions, how do you then, how do you actually communicate that when you're starting to work with people mm-hmm. and they're saying, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, or they're, they're just miserable? How do you then, what is their definition of happiness? Because surely there must be some something you have to overcome there to get them to see what happiness actually is. Is that is that correct? Well, two things. One thing I would say is that um, people won't embrace what I teach unless they're ready to change. So a lot of people come to me and say, oh, my God, my mum needs you, my sister needs you, my boyfriend needs you, and I'm like, that's fine. Share with them who I am and what I'm about. But it's like smoking. People won't quit or they won't seek the help that they need until they're ready to. So um, that's the first thing. It's like mm. it doesn't matter what I do. I can't change people who aren't ready to change. The second thing is in terms of helping people find their own definition of happiness, there was a little energizer exercise that when I started doing my workshops, um, I was doing just to get people sort of, you know, warmed up and connected within the room. But what it did was really insightful and I started to capture the data around it because the whole exercise was getting people to pull out their mobile phones and share a picture of what happiness looked like for them. And I've done this now for the past three years with thousands of people around the world and basically happiness is found in a number of key areas and it is consistent no matter where you go. People are happy when they are present and in the moment, when they are humanly connected, when they're having experiences, when they're achieving things, when they're positively impacting the lives of others or this one I absolutely love, when they're with animals or out mm. or out with nature. And what I find so fascinating about having done this with so many people is everything that comes up can fit into one of those buckets. And the saddest part is that when you show people, when you give people the visual and get them to tell you what it looks like and you ask them how much time they spend doing those things, it's very little. And often what we spend our time doing yeah, is stuff that we don't enjoy. I'm generalizing, but I see this for me. We spend most of our time doing things we don't enjoy to accumulate um, material items that no one ever shows when I ask them what happiness looks <laughs> there's like. There's no picture of cars. There's never a car. A there's phone. never a desk. There's never a mobile phone. There's never the house that I just bought. None of that. It's all the things that I just mentioned. Yeah. And we spend all our time busy accumulating these material things that we don't know, we know don't make us happy. And it's at the compromise of the things that do make us happy. And I personally believe, and I'm very passionate about this, we are experiencing an epidemic in the mental well-being of our society, especially in the professional space. And I think so much of that plays into the fact that where we spend our time and energy, yeah, um, is on the things that don't fill us up, that don't make mm-hmm. us happy. I mean, the, the other element is obviously the um, over-utilisation of technology, which you and I spoke about um, earlier. But, you know, uh, a busy mind will always go to anxiety. I had a psychologist tell me recently, and um, we're definitely over, overstimulated when it comes to technology and partner that with doing things that you don't enjoy. Is there any wonder that we have so many anxious and overwhelmed people in our society? Yeah, absolutely. I see that in myself, like having an overactive mind and – I don't consider myself an anxious person, mm. yet I've been getting migraines. I've got – my dentist told me that I've been grinding my teeth wow. in my sleep yeah. and asked him why. He said because of stress. And I said, but I'm not a stressy, anxious person. He said it doesn't matter. Your body manifests stress in different – you 
different things cause stress to the body. And I was like, oh, my God, like I don't even think I'm stressed and apparently I'm stressed. It's like, <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm going to share with you because I've just written, um, I've just done a YouTube video on it. Um, one of the most overused words in our vocabulary at the moment is the word busy. Oh, okay. And yes. so my hypothesis is that busy equals bullshit. And, and I hope I'm allowed to swear. Sorry. Didn't even It'll be marked explicit in <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> You've been, pre- everyone's been pre-warned. It's fine. <laughs> and so the reason I say busy equals bullshit is I actually think people use busy as a default. And when I say as a default, it's like a catch-all for the fact that they feel overwhelmed. But the problem with busy is that it's so overused that no one's consciously actually understanding what they're busy doing. So I've actually shifted, and this comes back to mindset and testing things. A friend of mine gave me this advice. I've shifted my language. I've removed busy from my vocabulary. And now when people ask me how I am, I say I'm positively occupied. That's great. Okay. And <laughs> I love that. It's been really profound from a couple of perspectives. So firstly, it's shifted my mindset because I am positively occupied. I do what I do because I love it and I made a conscious choice to be doing this. But for someone, you know, if someone else starts using this, I challenge people to use it. If you say I'm positively occupied and you don't actually believe it, then you should be asking yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Secondly, it shifts the whole conversation when you respond like that rather than say I'm busy. People are like, well, if you're positively occupied, what are you doing? Because I'd like to be doing more of that sort of stuff. Um, and I've started sharing it in the large keynotes that I, that I deliver and people love it. Like it's a thought provoker. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're missing in today's society is this consciousness around what we're spending our time doing. And it's just such a simple tactic to bring that consciousness back and really challenge ourselves to say, you know, if I'm not positively occupied, why the hell am I doing this? I love that. Yeah. Positively occupied. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. Trust (laughs) trust me, it works. It works. Yeah. Let's talk about fearlessness Mm. and getting comfortable with discomfort because I know this is something you're really passionate about and passionate about sharing with people. Um, You delivered a keynote around this topic in your bathing suit. This was last year. Yeah, I did. To demonstrate (laughs) to people that you are living what you preach. You're not just telling people, you're actually doing it. Can you tell me how did that idea come up? Oh, it's so funny. And this is the craziness of, you know, a woman who leaps out of the corporate world and then, you know, (laughs) obviously decides to just push the boundaries. So, um, again, through um, my experience of taking that huge leap, I'd started to realise that um, the most amazing things were happening for me in my new career when I allowed myself to get comfortable with discomfort and when I put myself in the most, you know, uncomfortable situation. So I was asked by the Level Up Conference, which is a conference for professional women to level up their careers, to come and deliver a keynote on tactics for happy change. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I know, look, I've delivered a lot of talks in my time and, you know, people will only, you mean you're a speaker, people will only take away often one thing, mm. you know, um, from your talk. So I was like, well, what's the one message I want people to take away? Yeah, and it's that the magic happens when we allow ourselves to get comfortable with discomfort. Nothing worth happen ha- having comes easily, I've found. The great stuff comes in that discomfort. So I was like, well, if that's the message, how am I actually going to convey that to 100, you know, 150 women um, so that it truly resonates and they walk out the door curious enough to want to step into one of those fears that they've had for ages that's holding them back from doing something that's going to make them happier? And so I've been thinking about this. The other thing was I had the graveyard shift. It was 2.30 in the afternoon. They were share- they were oh, um, the providing wine at lunchtime. <laughs> so I was like, how the hell am I also going to keep these people awake? 
And then I had one of those light bulb moments three weeks out in the middle of the night and I'm like, that is it. And I rung my father the next day. I think he's 76 years old. And I told him what I was going to do. And he's like, that's the best idea you've ever had. And I'm like, if my dad's telling me to take my clothes off in front of an audience, (laughs) I must be onto something. So the whole intent was to move the women in that room. I never anticipated what was going to happen thereafter. And so basically um, that was how I came at it. And um, I turned up at the conference and I am not a nervous speaker, but I can tell you I was shaking beforehand. Um, I walked out on that stage in a wraparound dress and I basically said, love me or hate me, you will not forget me. And if there is only one thing you take away from today, and I took my dress off, it says, I said that it's, um, that, you know, the magic happens in life when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. And I can honestly tell you, it doesn't get any more effing uncomfortable than this. <laughs> and seriously, um, the response was unbelievable because I've got a body built for comfort, not for modeling. I'm 42 <laughs> years, oh well, 42 now, I was 41 then. Um, and so, you know, there's not, I knew there wouldn't be a woman in that room that couldn't relate to how that felt. I mean, two of the greatest fears of public speaking and doing it naked. Mm. You know, I kind of combined the two. I just left the bathing suit on. Um, and, you know, it moved the women in the room before I even had the chance to deliver my talk. But I think, the most profound thing for me that I never expected from that moment. And again, it's just proof of how your life can change when you step into fear. When I took my dress off, I never scripted saying, love me or hate me, you won't forget me. But when I took my dress off, I've never felt so empowered in all of my life or so comfortable in my own skin. You know, and I've had body image issues for years. I've always suffered or had, you know, a struggle with weight. But when I stood there in that moment, I realized for the first time in 41 years of my life that I no longer sought the validation of anyone else. The only validation I needed in my life was my own. And as long as I was true to kind of, you know, what it was that I wanted to achieve in life, it it didn't matter. The, The judgment of others just didn't matter. And it's pretty amazing when you let go of that judgment and care for what others think of you, how it can shift your life and and where you focus your energy. And then what happened afterwards? (laughs) Well, I walked off the stage and seriously, I reckon half of the room, there was like a queue of women, women, these women just kept coming up to me and saying, you've just given me permission to do something that I've always wanted to do and been too afraid because what I want to do is nowhere near as damn scary as what you just did. So I'd actually <laughs> yeah. given them a benchmark um, to sort of say, you know what, it's not as big a deal as what you think it is. So I hopefully gave a lot of women in that room permission to to step into fear, or so they said. Um, And then a friend of mine said to me, you have to um, share why you did this on social media and share an image because what you just did was unbelievable. And I was like, really? And I'm like, you know, I've got a lot of professional, you know, blue chip corporate people watching me on LinkedIn. I'm sure there's some out there that are hoping I'll fall flat on my face, you know, in my change, and that's fine. Um, And I'm like, they're going to think I've lost the plot. And so I was like, that's it. That's the message. So I posted it on LinkedIn and Instagram and I just basically said, today I officially lost the plot. Um, I delivered a keynote in my bathing suit and this is why I did what I did. You talk about authentic leadership. I think authenticity, again, is bullshit. It's like why is it we have to tell people to be who they are? That's what authenticity is. You know, the problem is not about telling – people don't have a problem being who they are. The problem we have is that people um, don't feel comfortable in the environments that we create owning who they are. So I spoke about um, ditching authenticity and being genuine and just being who you are and showing up as who you are in every space. That, to me, is leadership. So I shared that and uh, it went 
can you believe this? I didn't even know this was a thing. It went viral on LinkedIn. So I had over 50,000 views of the blog that I wrote and my profile. I started getting emails from all around the world with from people that I'd never met telling me that they were going to step into a fear. Some people were going to leave their jobs. Other people were saying they were going to leave partners, like crazy stuff, right? Oh and I was just sitting there going, oh, I don't know whether I'm comfortable with this. But then I'm like, you know what? Only they can decide what's right for them. And so many of them said that it was a decision they'd been sitting on for so long. And what I had done had prompted them to make change. But it also um, created a movement, which was really interesting, called the Naked for Change movement, where I basically challenged people off the back of my blog to step into fear, even not do what I did, but even in just a small way um, in order to see the benefits of doing this. Um, and had a lot of people posting on Instagram different different fears that they'd stepped into. And, yeah, it was it was pretty profound. Can you give some examples of what – yeah. What some people had done. Yeah. So I had um, a girl who's now become a good friend who's a wellbeing blogger um, over in Perth um, posted a photograph of her in her bathing suit and spoke about the fact that she'd always had body image issues um, and she's a wellbeing blogger and how, you know, she's had challenges with food and she'd always felt uncomfortable sharing that because she was a wellbeing blogger, mm. yeah. So she did that. There was another girl who had been um, sexually abused and felt shame around that. And she posted the most beautiful photograph. I want to say beautiful, it was confronting, but it was just so powerful where she'd written the words of shame all over her face in lipstick. Like, you know, I still get goosebumps when I think about I had um, an, another guy um, who I used to work with um, at Shell that I hadn't seen for years, and he emailed me and basically said, um, I'm going in to quit my job today because I've hated this work for so long and you've just given me a level of comfort around stepping into fear. It's crazy because it's not like these people couldn't do these things before. They were perfectly capable of doing it, but you stepping outside of your comfort zone gave them permission. Well, they were able to give themselves permission to do it. Yeah. Why do you think people hold themselves back? Like, you know, why did it take for you to get out there in your bathing suit to actually really drive that change in people? Oh, look, I think there's a few reasons. I think people make things a lot bigger in their head than what they really are. Yeah, so we, and, and especially females, we overthink things, we overanalyze things, and it can often paralyze us from action. And especially women, you know, we we think that we can't take action until we have the perfect plan. Mm. So there's this fear of failure and stuffing things up. But, um, you know, and and not sharing the things that you want to do. Like people don't talk about what they want to do because they're worried they'll be judged. So they keep it in their head longer and longer. And, you know, we know um, we know from the, the science and the research that the more you keep things in your head in terms of challenges or fears, the bigger and the bigger they get in terms of creating a barrier between you and action. So I think we keep too much in our heads. I think we worry too much about not having the perfect plan and we allow that to stop us. I think we fear failure. Uh, we definitely fear the judgment of others. Um, I know a lot of people are held back by uh, they have a fear of financial instability. I know this because I've got all the data I've captured. I know, you know, the greatest fears people have. I've captured all the fears that have come up in the Fearless Masterclass um, over the last two years. So, you know, I think – People just it's it's almost like we want to find excuses. And it's I always say to people, you just gotta trust that the action will breed the clarity. And the reality is that even if things don't work out, it doesn't matter because what I've learned is that 
every time you step into fear, it creates a stepping stone to where you're meant to be. And you don't necessarily know where you're meant to be, but as long as you learn from it, I, I just don't, I don't, you know, as long as you're not out there taking massive risks with your life or others' lives and you're not hurting anybody, it's like, I always say to people, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like we, we have this whole process around it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Now what's the best thing that could happen? Because we're very good at focusing on the negative impacts if it doesn't work out, but we diminish the positive ones. Um, and the other thing we work through is, which I find really powerful, it's like if you're still in the same position in 12 months' time and you you do nothing, yeah, you do absolutely nothing about this thing you want so badly that you're allowing fear to hold you back from, what's going to be the impact on your mental well-being, on the people that you love, yeah? Um, are you going to become one of those toxic people at work that everyone gets annoyed with because you do nothing but whinge and complain? What are, what are the physical, the emotional, you know, the mental and the external implications of not stepping into that fear? Mm. And if there Powerful aren't question, any, yeah. But if there aren't any, then maybe, you know, maybe it's something you shouldn't do. But nine times out of ten, it's, I believe that we should step into it because it's something for most people they've longed for. Um, they're just happy to, well, not happy, but they they're they're just too fearful too fearful i actually have a physical reaction to in a in a positive way like i i sort of have this little laugh like a little giggle when yeah. when i say something or someone presents an idea to me or suggests something that scares me i do this little <laughs> like I, I i physically you know react to it and to me and i've come to learn over the years that that is a signal that it is worth doing because it scares me in that capacity. That's you your know, amygdala. It actually, yeah. it actually ha- like it physically manifests itself, and I go, "Oh my god!" That physical response is called an amygdala hijack. So there's a small part of your brain, um, I think, that sits at the front, and basically it, it comes from you know the the caveman days where we would be in danger and we would have a fight or flight response. And the reality is that we're not in life-threatening situations much anymore. So our amygdala responds, um, you know, with physical responses and kicks in and takes over the rational part of our brain and makes us irrational when it mm. kicks in. Um, and it, it applies now to things, you know, that aren't life-threatening, things that are, are silly in many ways. And so when you get that physical response, it's good to know that it's your amygdala kicking in because what happens when it kicks in is even if it's short term, but for some people it's longer, it places you into irrational thought. So often, you know, when people are fearful, they do things that they wouldn't normally do. And later on, they're like, what the hell just happened? Why did I behave that way? That's so not me. That's your amygdala hijacking your, your rational brain. And if you're conscious and aware of it, then you can, it's like anything, you know, I say, you know, the, the first step to change is awareness. So being conscious and aware of this means that you can then take practical steps to kick your rational brain back in quicker, which puts you in more, more in control of situations. So once we're aware of that, apart from asking those powerful questions that you shared, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And then in 12 months time, if I don't take action, how yeah. that's going, what's that going to feel like? Is there anything else that you, recommend or suggest that people do to help them overcome this fear? I think the most powerful tool that I've ever come across and I use it all the time and I advocate it in all my programs and it, it's become so popular on social, social media I actually printed posters and started selling them. <laughs> 
was called this um, concept of 100 no's and you don't have to buy the poster. You can make it up you, yourself at home like I did when I started on a, on a large piece of butcher's paper. And so the concept of 100 no's is really around embedding this practice that I, um, I advocate called micro-bravery. So the only way to build the courage and confidence to get comfortable with discomfort on a regular basis and step into bigger and bigger risks and fears over time is by practicing micro-bravery. So it's by stepping into little fears every day in order to build the courage, the confidence and the resilience to be able to take on more fears as you progress. So what I advocate is that you write a 100 no's on a piece of paper, you stick it somewhere visible, I put it in my bedroom so I'd wake up and see it every day, and your goal is to get out there and ask for all the things you've ever wanted but been too afraid to ask for. So your goal is to get out there, right, (laughs) and get as many no's as you possibly can. You want to get rejected as many times because, I mean, who loves a no? I do, but it's only from this process. So every time you get a no, it's a win. It's a mini celebration because you're closer to that 100. But here's the catch. And trust me, I've got mine. I'll take a photo of it for you on my wall at home because I still use this every day. It's just that I do bigger fears now. Um, The catch is that every no you get moves you closer to an even bigger yes. And some of the yeses that I have had since I started employing this practice have blown my mind. They are things that I never even imagined possible. Can you share one? Can I share one? I'll share share two that have blown – well, three. Um, I was sent to Israel last year on an all-expenses-paid trip with 50 female leaders from around the world to immerse myself in the entrepreneurial culture of Israel. They have the highest number of entrepreneurs per capita in the world. So how did you ask – who did you ask – and what did you ask? So I um, basically wrote down a list of all the things I wanted in life and I started actively sharing it with all the people that I met with. Not unsolicited, but basically rather than talking about what I did, I talked about what I wanted in life and what I was passionate about. And so my ask was by basically putting out there what I wanted. And then when a friend said to me, there's this opportunity in Israel, I think you'd be great for I said, could you please put me forward? because she was connected to the organisers. And she said, I will, I'll endorse you. And then I asked them, obviously I had to go through a whole application process, and then I got through. Um, And they have thousands of applications. I went to San Francisco last year and delivered my workshops to packed houses, um, which I didn't even know was possible at the start of last year. And that was just through asking people that I'd worked with in Australia, in Lululemon, in General Assembly, whether they knew anyone in San Francisco that I could connect with that might be interested in my work. And seriously, just through asking, within two days I had already had you know a major booking with a, a global client. And then the most profound one is um, one that I only received two weeks ago. So I went to a conference called Singularity um, in Sydney this year, which was the first time it had ever been in Australia. Australia. And um, Singularity University is out of San Francisco, and basically it was formed by Ray Kurzweil, one of the well, basically the number one futurist in the world around the impacts of technology and AI, AI on our lives, which is something I'm very passionate about. And they run an executive leadership program only three times a year and they only take 25 people and it's run out of the NASA Research Centre. And so after I went to this conference, I'm like, I'm going to apply. I'm going to ask for what I want and I'm going to apply for that and hope that I get a no. And a week ago I got accepted and I'm going in July to spend a week hanging out with basically the, the top innovators in technology and artificial intelligence in the world so that I can learn from them and learn more about how I can help humanise the future of work and teach people the skills that enable them to thrive and amplify their human potential rather than be replaced by AI and tech. Wow. 
so inspiring. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I really, I'm so excited. I want to do this hundred nose thing. It works. Yeah. Trust me. I'm going to do it. Works. Reminds me of that guy who went on the, it was like hundred days of rejection. Yeah. Um, Gia's young. Oh, so good. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I'll link that up in the show notes actually. One yeah. of the best TED Talks that oh, you'll watch. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. Really good. Oh, amazing. I love that, Penny. I'm actually going to, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, before we wrap up, please um, tell us a bit about Be Kindred and some of the work you've got going on at the moment or is there something coming up that you're really excited about that you'd like to share? Oh, gosh. Um, so Be Kindred basically – I've got this crazy mission to teach a million women and girls by 2020 how to future-proof happiness in work and life. Um, and basically all the programs that we run are around, you know, um, trying to amplify human potential and teach people um, the skills that will enable them to thrive and be happy in the future, not only in life, but in work. So I work with a number of large corporations in that space. I do a lot of keynotes. Um, but probably the favorite thing that I do, um, is the, the workshops, the individual workshops that I run, well, not individual, but the small group workshops. So, um, the Fearless Masterclass is coming up in Melbourne, I think at the end of April. Um, and we've got some workshops around, um, future proof. So I teach people how to future proof themselves or kickstart that journey, um, in a world where, you know, um, there's never been more uncertainty. We start with some simple tactics. So they're two things that I'm extremely passionate about. And then, you know, I, have the wonderful opportunity of traveling around Australia, delivering keynotes um, around fear is the future with um, organizations like Financial Executive Women, you know, the Finance and Treasury Association. So there's loads of things that I'm doing, but the, the one that I love that probably would be of most interest to your um, your audience is the, the smaller workshops because I just find the level of connection and the level of sharing um, and stories and experience um, that comes out in those workshops really shifts people. I mean, I'm purely a facilitator sharing knowledge, but the real power comes in the peer learning, I find. Absolutely. And I'm more than happy to share those workshops as well um, with the listeners. I'll put links there to where people can find them. Thank you so much, Penny. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for sharing all your wisdom. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Kristen. How amazing is Penny? I challenge you to create a 100 nose poster and get out there and start collecting your nose. If you go to thecmethod.com slash penny, the show notes, I'll link up the 100 Days of Rejection blog as well that we mentioned, as well as the link to the article where Penny writes about her bathing suit keynote experience. You should definitely go check that out. Okay, um, before I let you go, a quick reminder about a couple of live workshops I have coming up in Melbourne. One is a public speaking day workshop. The other is a podcasting course, which is happening over three two-hour sessions, and that's during the first three weeks of August. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast or you know someone who does, then this is this is the workshop that they should come along to. Um, you can go to thecmethod.com slash events for links to all of those events. I've put them all there on one page. Also, if you're listening listening to this sometime in the future, um, do go to that page as well. There'll be links there to all the upcoming workshops, training, and events that I'll be speaking at. So that's thecmethod.com slash events. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I do hope you enjoyed this podcast and I will talk to you next week. My name's Christina Canters. See you then. Thank you for listening to Stand Out, Get Noticed. 
To learn more and inquire about the C-Method coaching, keynote and corporate training programs, visit thecmethod.com.